0: If you are joining us either online or in person, it's an opportunity for us to start a brand new series this day, and this series will culminate in Easter. A lot of things are going to be happening on this campus, many things that you're familiar with, many things that perhaps you are unfamiliar with, and as we start this brand new series, a moment ago, Pastor Kim shared with us that we have our small group opportunity and experience for us in groups to go through some of the content that we'll be going through on Sundays. So in many ways, this is a compliment. It doesn't duplicate, but it's a compliment to the topic that we're going to be exploring these seven weeks, that we are invited to participate in God's passion. And as we look over these next seven weeks, we're going to take a look at Jesus. And we're going to see these invitations that God gives us through the life of Jesus. In fact, as we look at the Gospel according to Mark, we get to see over the next seven weeks little snapshots, little scenes—seven scenes in particular in the life of Jesus—that really each of them they're an invitation to consider how we might change our lives to be in alignment with, in tune with Jesus. To think of it a different way, let me ask you this question: If your if your life was a song, what kind of song would it be? Would it be in harmony with others? Would it be beautiful? Would it be melodious or would it be out of tune? Would there be flat moments, sharp moments, off-key moments? Well, Zephaniah the prophet says that the Lord rejoices over us with singing, so in some ways we can say that the greatest song that God ever wrote was the life of Jesus. Not one moment, not one word, not one decision that Jesus made was out of tune. In fact, it was beautiful. It was the greatest masterpiece There is, And in many ways, we're going to take a look at seven different notes, pitch perfect, that if we were to tune our lives, tune our hearts to be in sync with and harmony with those notes that Jesus lived, oh, what a beautiful melody God could sing through us. But I want to warn you as we take a look at some of these things, at first you might hear them, you might see them and say, whoa, that's, that's pitch Perfect. That's beautiful. And we want to intentionally do those things because so often we pick and choose the things that we love about Jesus and we skip over the things that we think we don't love about Jesus, but then we miss out on the beautiful notes that make up the full and beautiful song that is Jesus. Jesus says, if you want me, you've got to want all of me. And as we go through these seven weeks, we're going to have in each of the seven weeks an opportunity to explore that on Sunday, also in our small groups as we get into this Lent season. There's also Lent devotionals that we have written by our staff and even members of our congregation. And as we get into that Holy Week, we have a great opportunity on Palm Sunday. I'm going to share a little bit more about that in the weeks ahead, but we're going to experience something that we've never experienced before on this campus. And as we get into that week, we have our Monday, Thursday service, of course, There's going to be stations of the cross throughout. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to be doing something that we haven't done in a while here at Bel Air. We're actually going to bring Easter back to Bel Air this year on campus. Now, some of you might say, wait a second, I thought this was the church that does it at the bowl, and the only reason I'm here is to you know, get ready for the bowl. And some of you are saying, thank you, finally we get got to come back here. There was huge applause in the 9 a.m. to come back, and then some people were like. <laughs> so there's a mix. No, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to generate that at all. But what I am saying is that we have an opportunity, no matter where we gather on Easter Sunday, to invite people to come and hear a message that no one else can share other than the church. And it's a message of hope. It's a message of love. We don't have to be in a particular place or under a particular roof or out in nature. We just have to be present to what God wants to do in and through us. And some of you might say, what happened? What happened? What happened with the bowl? We've got a great relationship with the Hollywood Bowl. In fact, they they want us to come back, and they're saying, hey, if you want to come back next year, you've got first dibs. So we haven't lost that relationship or broken that relationship. In fact, there's not going to be any other partner churches that will be doing a great celebration of the Bowl as we had in the past. They backed out months ago, and we felt that at this time, in this season of this church, the best thing that we could do to lift up the name of Jesus was to do that here 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and noon on Easter Sunday. So I'll tell you more about that before we go. That's exciting. Anywhere where we lift up the name of Jesus, but we'll we'll explain more of that and explore some more of that. But before we do that, let's listen. Let's look at one of those pitch-perfect notes that Jesus lived with His life. This is just one of the seven notes that we'll explore over the next seven weeks. If you have your Bibles, open those up to Mark chapter 11. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's the red book. If you're in the front rows, you can reach right behind your legs there. They're in the little cubby, nice and hidden there. And if you're listening online, we're going to Mark chapter 11. We're in the New Revised Standard Version. That is the English version that we're going to be reading from today, and often most Sundays we read from that. And I want you to hear this, and I want you, even as you're listening to this, To remember the backdrop, I'm saying that this is a pitch-perfect note. And we have an opportunity to tune our lives to this. This is Mark's gospel, chapter 11, verse 12. Let me read all the way through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, this is Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, "'Is it not written, "'My house should be called a house of prayer "'for all the nations? "'But you have made it a den of robbers.' "'And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, "'they kept looking for a way to kill him, "'for they were afraid of him, "'because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. "'And when evening came, "'Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. "'In the morning as they passed by, "'they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots.' Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. This, my friends, is God's Word. Now I'm thinking some of you are saying, whoa, 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 was that a mistake? Did he mean to read that passage? I mean, he just said that this was a pitch-perfect note that Jesus lived, and yet... We get an image, we get a picture, we listen, we hear, we see Jesus cursing a fig tree, overturning tables in a temple. What is this all about? Drew, you're telling me to invite people to come hear about this Jesus? I want the beautiful Jesus, the one that washes the disciples' feet, the one that raises Lazarus from the dead, who gives sight to the blind, who causes the lame to walk. I want that Jesus. Now, some of us have heard this story before. And we're still confused. And it's easier to kind of forget this story and go to the ones that are beautiful, that are easy. And for some of you in this room, I imagine you're hearing this for the first time and you're thinking, what did I get myself into? Where's the closest exit? How do I get out of here? This guy, Jesus, this is who they worship? This is who they follow? I mean, he's hungry and he's mad at a tree and he curses it. What kind of psycho is that? I imagine some of you are thinking. Now, I want to try to put us all on, it's hard to put us all on the same page, but we, we, we've got to get rid of 2,000 years of church history and commentary and scholarship and, and preaching to put us in a place where we hear this for the first time. What would it have been like? I want us to really dive into this. What would it have been like to hear about Jesus doing this for the first time? Take a look at this.
1: Good evening. Tonight, breaking news on Eyewitness Jerusalem. This afternoon, the popular Galilean rabbi known as Jesus desecrated the Lord's temple, turning over tables, whipping merchants, declaring that they had made his father's house into a den of thieves. For more on this story, we take you live to the temple. Thank you, Sarah. I am standing outside the temple where merchants' tables were overturned earlier this afternoon we were able to procure this footage of the unprovoked violence.
0: My Father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations.
1: What exactly happened? Well, millions of people, they make their way to Jerusalem every year as part of a pilgrimage to celebrate
0: Passover, and they need animals to sacrifice in the temple.
1: We provide spotless doves and lambs for these weary travelers out of the goodness of our heart.
0: Sweetheart, please!
1: The cages are broken and the doves are gone! I know! We understand that High Priest Caiaphas had recently sanctioned sales inside the temple, but many merchants had marked up their sacrificial animals, some 20 to 30 times their value. Could this be the reason for today's unprecedented outbreak of violence? Excellent question, Sarah. Some people are saying you've brought this on yourselves by price gouging the faithful pilgrims. Price gouging. Do you have any idea how hard it is to find a spotless dove? They all have spots on them! I have no idea what was going through that deranged man's mind, but we have always been
0: 100% fair in all of our dealings. The
1: bulk of our income comes from these high holy days. Yes. What are we supposed to do now? I just just wait around until Hanukkah? Happy Hanukkah! <laughs> I'm going to take that as a no. Reporting live for Eyewitness Jerusalem, back to you, Sarah. For more on this late-breaking, shocking story and its political ramifications, We now go to point-counterpoint. On the left, the undersecretary of the Sadducees, Rabbi Moshkowitz. And on the right, one of the followers of Jesus, a fisherman by the name of Peter. But first, we take you back to that shocking, late-breaking news footage. Can you explain your leader's actions, Peter?
0: Sure. Those merchants are corrupting the true purpose of the temple. Jesus wants to invite everyone to his Father's temple, so it can be a house of prayer for all nations. Invite? This is how your Jesus invites people to the temple? By overturning tables and destroying merchandise? Not all the time, but in this case... Sarah, I I think it is patently obvious that this Galilean rabbi and his uneducated followers are nothing more than common rabble-rousers. That may be true, but the only reason this whitewashed tomb's vestments in a wad is because he and his Pharisee friends are losing power. That is not... In case you haven't noticed, all of Jerusalem is flocking to Jesus. He listens to them, he heals them, and he's not afraid to stand up to bureaucratic windbags like this guy. Oh, I am am sorry. That is it. I have to go.
1: We'll be following this growing controversy surrounding Jesus and his growing popularity all week long on Eyewitness Jerusalem. Gentlemen!
0: And the theme of this series is invited, Uh, we need to know that when many people, Christians, non-Christians, when they look at this passage, they think, what on earth was Jesus thinking? And if we've grown up in the church, we think, oh yeah, I love this story, I love this story, but for much of the world and even for many Christians, many in this room, we have that sort of a reaction, what on earth is he doing? Who is this guy? What's the point? Why did he do this? And yet at the same time, I'm telling you that Jesus didn't have one word, one decision, one action that was out of tune with the pitch-perfect love of God the Father to this world. That might seem harsh, and yet when you zoom back and look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the fullness of Scripture, we clearly see that that was one of the most beautiful things that Jesus could have done In that moment, you see, Jesus was compelled in everything that he did. He didn't just react, things didn't just happen to him. He wasn't just, you know, sauntering on the way to Jerusalem, be hungry, see a fig tree, and react to that. He was compelled to act, to love, to serve, to bless, even to speak truth boldly. I want to take a step back for a moment and give you a little history up until this moment to give context to this fig tree, to give context to the temple, to tell you what's going on. In fact, in your small groups, if you're going to join those, whether it's here on Sunday or even through this Lent season, you'll go into even greater detail, greater historical context. But I can tell you that in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram and says that you are going to be a father of a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations. You see, from the very beginning of the nation of Israel, of God's people, they were given an identity and a purpose. God says, you are mine, and the purpose is so that you can bless the world. So that the whole world can be invited into a relationship with me to find peace, to find security, to find hope, to find salvation. And so the nation of Israel, you see throughout the entire Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the whole of the Old Testament, they would forget their identity. They'd forget their purpose. They forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing. And they took the blessings of God and all that God gave them, and they began to just focus on themselves. And constantly throughout the Old Testament, we see it in the Psalms. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in other books of the Bible where the prophets that God speaks through refers to the nation of Israel as a fig tree and so this theme is interwoven throughout the entire history of the nation of Israel and constantly there's this accusation to God's people you're not bearing fruit you're not living up to the purpose that you were created for you're not blessing the neighbor you're not blessing those foreigners those those people in the land that I've called you to bless and so here there's this great celebration in Jerusalem at the temple It's the Passover celebration. The typical crowds that lived in Jerusalem, we believe, is about 50,000. At Passover, it would swell to a quarter million. Pilgrims would make the long journey to the temple to participate, to, to worship God, to experience that. They came from all over to witness, to be present to, to be with God's people. But as the years had gone by, They began to leverage that opportunity for themselves. They weren't welcoming to the pilgrims. They weren't welcoming to the stranger. They weren't inviting people in. They were extorting them. They were raising the prices of the things that were sold in the temple. It was part of the sacrificial system at that point in the nation of Israel's history, but people were being exploited, were being used, were being marginalized. And very clearly, even though there was all this activity, there was clearly insiders and outsiders. And it's interesting that Mark, when he recounts this story to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he bookends that temple overturning of the tables with the story of the fig tree. Now, it's easy to miss, you know, you look at it on the surface and you say, what what is going on? Is he just hungry? Is he just mad? I mean, I don't want to be around Jesus, I guess, when he's hungry, we might think. Or, you know, does Mark know more than he does because Mark makes a comment and says, that figs were out of season. And yet just before that, Jesus sees this fig tree and walks up to it to get figs. So does Mark know more than Jesus? In fact, many people will actually use this to try to disprove Christianity. They'll say, how can this Jesus be the Son of God if He doesn't even know what season figs should be there? Well, it's very interesting when you take a look at figs in Jerusalem. In fact, there's many different varieties of figs. And they begin to bloom and begin to have their fruit roughly in March all the way through October. Now, again, there's different varietals of figs, but what is true about every fig tree is this, is that the fruit never comes before leaves. In fact, let me, let me flip that. That's, that's, that's what's wrong. How did I say that? Fruit never comes before the leaves. That's not true. Kim, you're helping me out here. I love it. The leaves never come before the fruit. Sometimes the fruit comes before the leaves. Sometimes the fruit and the leaves come at the same time. But never do leaves come before the fruit. So from a distance... Jesus sees this fig tree. Yes, it's out of season, but it's not rare for figs to actually blossom, to begin to have fruit when they're out of season. And so Jesus, from afar, looks at that fig tree and he sees the leaves, and so therefore it should be a sign. Whenever there's leaves, there's always fruit, because leaves always come after the fruit or with the fruit. And so Jesus sees that this fig tree has the appearance of, Of bearing fruit. There's life to it. There's activity to it. It's green. He walks up to it and there's no fruit. In fact, fig trees that have leaves that come before fruit is a sheer sign that that tree is barren. And if leaves ever begin to show on a fig tree and there's no fruit, that entire season, no fruit will ever come. Jesus wasn't compelled to curse that tree because He was hungry. He was compelled to curse that tree to show the nation of Israel the very thing that they were. There was life. There was activity. A quarter of a million people gathering for a feast. Talk about the energy. Talk about the life. Talk about the activity. But there was no fruit. You see, that fig tree that had leaves and no fruit existed for itself. Yes, I know it's a tree, but it really didn't offer anything for others. You see, fruit was for others to eat. There was fruit on fig trees for for pilgrims, for visitors, for people journeying to grab, to eat. Jesus was hungry, he wanted to be blessed by that fig tree. And he wasn't because it wasn't bearing fruit. It existed for itself. It had life to it. It wasn't dead, but it wasn't bearing fruit. And Mark bookends that story of Jesus going into the temple, overturning those tables as an accusation that the nation of Israel at that moment in time, and we can read our own lives into this, that we can have a lot of activity, we can have a lot of life, but are we bearing fruit that blesses others? You see, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we get grafted and we are part of God's people, but we are to be a blessing for others. We don't just gather in this place just for ourselves. We don't have life that God gives us just for ourselves, but we have been invited to invite others so that they may come and know the saving love of Jesus Christ. You see, when you look at just the action of Jesus cursing the fig tree, overturning tables, and you miss the bigger picture, you miss that Jesus is doing all this because He is compelled by love. Jesus said constantly, I have come to do the Father's will. There's nothing that I do apart from the Father. It is all for Him. Every single thing that He did, even if it caused people to think He was crazy, even if it caused people to think He was out of His mind, Even if people thought that he was a madman, even if he would give his life, he did all of it because he was compelled by the love of the Father. You see, that's the beautiful note that rings throughout all of eternity, that every action, every word, every decision that Jesus made was because he was compelled by the love of the Father. And yet when you look at that little moment, it sounds harsh, right? Seven years ago, if you saw me ramming my two fingers into my sister's throat, which I actually did, if you saw me ram them into her throat and go like this, you would think, who is this guy? That's pretty harsh. That's pretty violent. Who is this guy? And if that's the only scene that you got, you think, I don't want to be around that monster. But if you were to step back and see the full scene of my sister drowning at my parents' house in a pool with me, she was joking around, going up out of the water, ah, and she'd go underwater, ah, and she was kind of making this sound as she went underwater and breathed in so deep as she went underwater that she inhaled a lungful of water. And I'm not trained in CPR. I have no idea what I'm doing. I rush over to her. We're the only ones home. And I try to give her the heimlich. That doesn't work. I'm freaking out. I'm panicking. I can't tell you why I did what I did. I turned around and I jammed my finger right into her mouth. I began doing this. And she gagged and vomited all of that water onto me. (laughs) And it saved her life. Why was I compelled to do that? That harsh thing, that violent thing? Because I loved her. And I loved her so much that I almost, I didn't even think about it. I didn't think about what she thought. I didn't think about if people were watching what they think. I didn't think that seven years later I'd use this as an illustration in a sermon, but I went in there because I loved her so much. And Jesus comes in and he overturns these temples because he loves us so much. And he says that if you think that this relationship with me is just so that you can be blessed, to exclude others, to keep people on the margins, then you're missing the whole point. And I will shake up the status quo I will come into your life, and it might seem violent, but it's out of love. You see, when we can listen, when we can look at that beautiful, pure note that Jesus lives consistently throughout his life, when we can allow that note to be sung over us, as Zephaniah says, that God rejoices over us with singing, if we can sit in that, if we can allow that to saturate our ears and our mind and our heart, our entire being, then after a while when we sit in that love, when we receive that love, as Paul says, then therefore it's Christ's love that compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Therefore this life that we live, it's not for us. It's for Him. You see, the word should isn't very compelling. If a pastor, if a teacher, if someone in your life says, you know, you should do that because that's what Christians do, that's that's not going to compel you to action. It's not going to compel you to serve. It's not going to compel you to love others. But the more you listen and look at this love of Christ, the more your heart through God's Spirit begins to be tuned and you begin to be compelled to action, to serve, to love. You see, it's it's Christ's love, it's only Christ's love that's going to compel you to, at work, share your faith with somebody in the midst of them confiding to you the broken marriage that they have and you say to them, you know, I know that I've never talked to you about Jesus ever before, but I've found even in the brokenness of my marriage hope in Jesus Christ and He's transformed my marriage. I know that He can transform your marriage. Can I pray for you? There's nothing that's going to compel you to do that other than the love of Christ if you experience that. If you were at work with your family, with your friends, on the 405 at the DMV, there's only one thing. It's going to compel you to live and to love like Jesus. It's by listening to and looking at and saturating yourself and your life in that pure note of a compelling life that is Jesus Christ. You know, it's impossible for me to even think about that phrase that Paul reminds us. It's Christ's love that compels us so that we live not for ourselves but for Him without thinking, boy, of the martyrs who gave their life for Christ. This last week in Libya, and some of you know this story. You've, you've been emailing me. You've been saying, hey, "Drew, please pray for them." Can you share something? And so some of you aren't sure what I'm talking about right now, but the, the reports that it's been all over the news. In case you've missed it, there were 21 young men taken hostage by ISIS. They were each given a choice: either turn away from Jesus or face death. Reports have come out that actually of those 21, one of them from the nation of Chad in Africa, when he was taken hostage, when he was kidnapped, he was not a Christian. He could have very easily been let go. They assumed he was Christian, but they found out that he wasn't Christian. And as he sat captive, as he was surrounded by these young men who were so in love with Christ who were so compelled by the love of Christ that they wouldn't turn their eyes off of Him, that they were willing to even die for their faith, this young man from Chad, in captivity, gave his life to Christ because their love was so compelling. He wanted just to be a part of that. All 21 of them were killed for their faith. Why would they do that? What would compel them to do that, to lose their life? It wasn't because somebody said, you should do that. It wasn't because they thought, okay, if I do this, maybe God will love me. No. They were so compelled by the love of Christ that they were willing to give their lives for Him. There's this moment in the book of Revelation, I think it's Revelation chapter 12, where John says, referring to some, and I cannot help but think of these young men, that they didn't love their life so much that they would shrink from death. Man, and that convicts me because sometimes I love my life and my reputation and other people's opinion of me. The new neighbors that I have in this new neighborhood, I don't want to be seen as, you know, the Christian pastor. I, wanna, you know, I want them to like me. And sometimes that compels me to shrink back, not from death, but whatever it may be. Man, and I need to repent of that. I need to ask God for forgiveness. that He does forgive, but i got to wake up to this truth that I have a love that is being showered and lavished upon me and sometimes I miss it. I want to have a compelling life that is because I've been compelled to love others because of the love of Christ in my life. What compels you to act? It's your friends, your families, your neighbors, your kids, your grandkids, your coworkers. Is it fear, insecurity, anxiety? Is it a need to control? Is it a need to fit in? Is it a need to be loved? Are you compelled by the patterns that your family system has put upon you? Are you compelled by the addictions that you have in your life? You see, every single one of us is compelled by some force outside of ourselves. If we think that we can control those things, that's the whole self-help movement. That's what the self-help movement is all about. It's impossible to control all the forces in life, and what we can do is we can direct the one thing, the pure thing, the loving thing, the amazing thing to compel us, to direct us, to shape us, to transform us in our free will, and that's the love of Christ. We have an opportunity to tune our hearts to Him, to be blessed, to be a blessing. There's churches around the world who are going to take a moment of silence to to reflect to consider these martyrs. There's many more martyrs than those that make the news. And as we take these few seconds just to sit, to be still, to to reflect, to consider that they would give their life for Christ, I hope that it motivates me and it motivates us to be compelled not only to stand for Christ, but to pray for those men. I'm not talking about the martyrs. I'm talking about the other men that were there that day. That it would compel me to pray for them, that they would experience the transforming love of Jesus Christ, that they would know and experience the forgiveness that comes through faith and trust in Him. Jesus says that we should not only love our enemies, we should pray for them. Man, I can't do that on my own. I need God's Spirit and love to compel me to pray that kind of prayer. So let's be silent together as we continue our time. Jesus, I pray that that these words, that these world events would cause us to take a longer look at You and a longer listen of You, that we would hear that everything that You did was out of love for us, that You were compelled by the Father's love for us. May we be caught up in that love so that we too may be compelled to do things that would cause us, our families, our workplaces, this city, this world to flourish. May we be Your instruments as we invite You to sing that beautiful song through us by the power of Your Spirit.